All right, so we're uh, being recorded here. Um, good, good morning, good evening, good night, whatever it, uh, works for you. It's morning and the sun is shining here in Philadelphia, so um, it's all nice and bright. But uh, welcome to our ethnography and ethnomethodology Zoom conference. Um, I'm delighted that we're here, uh, joined by Dr. Kirti Bishar, who's an assistant professor OBHR at IIM Udaipur, my favorite city in India. Her area of specialty and expertise have been in ethnography. And uh, what she will do for us is to take a segment um, and walk us through a case study, apparently, which she did in Australia. Is that correct, Kitty? Australia, right? So yes. it will be very exciting to hear firsthand her accounts as an ethnographer and what are the challenges, opportunities, pitfalls, uh, et cetera, that she ran into. So we're gonna be doing that. We're also joined here by a young lady by the name of Avantika Thureja, who some of you already know. And she is uh, going to help us moderate and keep us all honest here, okay? Uh, and um, Avantika is also a project coordinator for us for one of the um, cross-generational studies that we'll be launching. Um, and my, my area of specialty, just a disclaimer, is not ethnography or ethnomethodology, even though these two are approaches that we use in qualitative research. Uh, my specialty, my area of specialty uh, and expertise is in phenomenology, grounded theory, and IPA, interpretative phenomenology and analysis. Um, and I've done a lot of work with this. As a matter of fact, I have a whole uh, YouTube channel where I provided uh, public resources to everybody. So one of the reasons I wanted to um, offer this Zoom conference, A, is to learn, and also B, is to have somebody else come and, and teach us a little bit about that. Um, so feel free to, uh, to ask questions, uh, but if you could just wait for the segments when we ask you to, um, you know, ask, uh, to, we'll be happy to field your questions at that time, uh, as opposed to jumping in all the time, uh, which I'm sure none of you is going to do. Uh, but we want to have a clean recording and we want to be able to make sure that everybody takes away something of value from this. And just to emphasize here, the focus here is not to teach you anything, okay? believe it or not. You might think that is a weird statement. If we're not here to teach anything, we are here to actually learn with you. So in that spirit, what I wanted to do was open the floor to you. And if you would just raise your hand and say what you understand when you hear the expression ethnography. What comes to mind when you hear the expression ethnography? Anybody? Um, so, so my name is Jayati. I okay. come from a psychological background. Okay. So I, I, this might not be the perfect answer, but when I uh, was reading my, you know, research methods, that's when ethnography came in place and we read it under observation. So it's ah. like when you, uh, you know, uh, uh, study behavior of people in their own original settings. So an example of this uh, kind of observation was when a researcher, you know, went into the field dressed up as a gorilla to understand gorilla's behavior. Uh, so that's what my understanding of ethnography comes from. 
Great, great, great. That's awesome. That is so awesome. I mean, it, you, you just, in a couple of words, you painted such a beautiful picture about ethnography in my mind. That is awesome, Jyoti. That's wonderful. What Thank do you think, you, uh, Kirti? Wasn't that, wasn't that awesome, the way she described it? Yeah, perfect. And a perfect example also. I think, you know, if you're referring to Jane Goodall's work, um, when I had to understand ethnography, that's where I went. You know, you want to learn the behavior. You want to observe and explain why things are happening. And as you said, you know, that you go into the field. So that, that idea of, you know, observing people where they are, you know, a more naturalistic inquiry. Um, and again, I think a perfect example. And if um, people here haven't heard of uh, Jane Goodall and her work, I would really suggest that, you know, that's a fantastic example, right? Um, she, so she's obviously looking at... Uh, gorillas, but understanding their behavior. And uh, very, very, you know, one of the other things that you pointed out was the involvement of the researcher, right? You are going there, you're very immersed. And I think that is a key here when we talk about ethnography, the fact that the researcher is immersed in the field, you're there observing. Nice, that's excellent. Who else has, uh... There's something to add that believe me, there's no imperfect answer or there's no bad answer. All answers are good, okay? Um, so don't hold yourself back. Hello, sir. Uh, it's so nice to hear from you. You sound so humble. I mean, everyone does even. I don't uh, know if I'm humble or not, but uh, I sound that way. <laughs> right. I, I recently went through, uh, while doing a review for one of the journals, it was yes. a research in which a PhD scholar was working alongside other PhD scholars. It was a group of uh, 12 subjects and uh, it was ethnographic research on how, I mean, to study the attrition rate of PhD candidates. So because the researcher was himself a PhD student and working along with other PhD students, they were trying to see why and what are the motivators for attrition or even being engaged till the end. So that was one of my exposures to uh, this research methodology. Nice. Yeah. Great. Uh, where are you located, uh, Abhishek? Sir, I'm staying in Kolkata. Oh, you're in Kolkata? Okay. I yes. see a guitar hanging at the back. Do you play the guitar? Yeah, I do, I do. Wonderful, wonderful. Right, <laughs> that's excellent. So anybody else wants to take a stab at this? Believe me, don't Hi, be Dr. Anil. Uh, Go ahead. Who's this? Ajit. Yeah. Uh, Ajit? Good evening. This is uh, Ajit Nair. Uh, Hi, it's Ajit. a pleasure. How are you? All, all well. Thank you for organizing this forum. And I think it's fantastic to see so many people here. Uh, I think all, all fairly learned on a Saturday evening. So clearly there is a common thread that you'd rather be learning on a Saturday evening than, uh, you know, doing other things, you, you know, so which is fantastic. Uh, so I've been a market researcher uh, uh, for a fair bit, uh, and then of course uh, transitioned over to organizational culture, etc. Uh, and uh, the most common use of ethnography, and I would say a limited so-called window of it, has really been around uh, what we call as day in the life of studies. They're called uh, DILOs. You know, so most market researchers would use that acronym. So it is essentially to understand brand consumption and usage in the context of the home. You know, so you literally go in and, and kind of be a fly on the wall, uh, you know, and you, you obviously use an appropriate researcher who fits in. Uh, 
right. you know, in the in the context of that particular home type or classification or socioeconomic class. And by literally spending a day or more, you try and understand how is that brand being consumed, you know, and, and that's usually done to uh, gather insights on consumption and then uh, understand the the consumer psyche and then look at what more can happen you know so either a brand extension or a product uh, innovation or a completely new need uh, which might be latent uh, and the consumer is not able to spell it out say in a focus group but through ethnography you're able to kind of really you know get that through sheer uh, so-called skill of observation etc Beautiful. That was, that was nice. And I'm so glad that you brought in this piece about user research, okay, okay. and how ethnography can become a part of user research. It's such, such an important area. And it's literally exploring. But what also made me chuckle was when you said fly on the wall, okay, because I was thinking of, does the fly on the wall become a detached observer? Or does the fly on the wall actually get into the food and become a participant observer? No, in fact, that's one of my questions coming into this session really is about, you know, how much, how do you ensure that you don't muddy the waters? You know, ah, and how do you, there, right? This is, and so, this is why we have uh, Dr. Kirti Mishra here with us. Yeah, yeah. From IMO. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Looking um, anybody else? That was, that was awesome. Thank you so much. And what, what part of India are you located in? I'm based in Mumbai. And pretty Mumbai. much located within my four walls right now for obvious reasons. Uh, so that's, that's really <laughs> where i'm at yeah okay excellent that's that's thank, thank, thank you thank for you. sharing your your piece with us anybody else yeah. um yes ishwarya nayak did uh, raise her hand who has raised her hand ishwarya nayak ishwarya okay go ahead ishwarya um hello good evening actually my question was along the same lines as mentioned before like uh, the role of the researcher as an absolute participant being immersed in being one with the you know uh, people there and being objective per se taking themselves apart from the setting so yeah i wanted to know more about that so it has been covered already that's great no well you've also brought in this uh, this piece about the dialectical tension between observing and participating okay and when you're observing are you participating or not and when you're actually participating what part of you is actually observing? That's always a, 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 a it's a critical skill, not, not only in, in, in ethnography, but also in uh, phenomenology, okay? Where a lot of us is, uh, a lot of the work that we are doing is actually co-creating knowledge. So even though we are involved, we are immersed in the co-creation of the knowledge, we are also observing as we, as we go. So that's great. That's great. So, so Kirti, what do you have to say about what Ashwarya just uh, said? So a couple of great points there, uh, if I might add, you know, market research and focus groups. So that's really interesting, you know, that, you know, people ask why ethnography? Like, why can't I, you know, like I said, why, what is it that, you know, I'm not getting out of a focus group? Or what is it, you know, that I'm trying to learn that an interview is not going to help me get and it, I think that's where the power of observation comes in. You know, we're trying to understand the unconscious actions. Um, when you ask people, they might not tell you the whole story because for very simple reason, they might think it's not important for you to know. You know, when uh, you talked uh, about market research and products and how people use products. Um, 
So it's only when we see them use that product, uh, we understand, okay, there could be a different use, you know, there could be an extension of a product. Um, to just share with you an example. So um, I work mostly with organizations, so, you know, organization and management. Uh, so the, the research site or the field for me is mostly organizations, you know, going to meeting rooms, asking people, why do you do this? Or why do you say that? Um, so one of the things that, you know, I like to ask people is, you know, how do you prepare for a meeting? Uh, because uh, I do research on routines. I try to understand, unpack the, you know, actions that people are involved in. And so, so preparing, you know, going for a meeting or going for a presentation, it's a normal routine for, for a manager or for somebody who's working in an organization in your professional life. And uh, when, when you ask them, right, they, they don't always uh, tell us about uh, some, you know, some sort of idiosyncratic actions that they do. And one of those uh, is actually how much, you know, some people have these routines where, you know, luck is important. Before I go for a really important meeting, I actually look at the photo of my child. Or, you know, I just go and, uh, you know, uh, pay my regards to my parents. Or I just rush into the temple and I, um, you know, uh, say a little prayer. And, you know, you ask people, right? In an interview, we go, we ask them, we probe that what is it? And people will, you know, they just, they feel that it's not important. It's not part of me preparing for a meeting. You know, mostly people talk about, you know, I go through my notes, I make sure that I'm dressed professionally. So this is this unconscious action that they're in, in, involving themselves in. It's actually a really important routine for us to understand. And this is where the power of ethnography comes into picture. That this is so important, you know, things that we cannot always get from an interview that's why we go and we, we observe people in their daily routines, you know, naturalistic inquiry. And I think a key thing there was also, you know, understanding that uh, how much observation. So, you know, you mentioned this really light, lovely metaphor, which people use being a fly on the wall. And this is where there is a spectrum. So you can be a fly on the wall, wherein you're not involving yourself. So we are not immersed, right? Very passively sitting on the wall, just listening, just noticing what is happening, who comes into the meeting, where is everybody sitting in the meeting? Uh, do they call each other sir and ma'am or everybody speaking first names? You know, gives a bit about culture and things like that. So very passive, just observing, noting and trying to understand. And you can have the extreme end where I think somebody shared the example of the PhD student where the, the researcher is also a PhD student. And this is the extreme case of immersion. And a lot of uh, people who, you know, in organizations, um, they tend to adopt this kind of a method where, you know, they come up with a problem. They think that, you know, there's something interesting to study and they're a researcher and they are a participant as well. So that's very, very extreme uh, level, you know? So, so think of it as a spectrum from being a fly on the wall where you're being very passive to you being completely integrated into the field. And I think somebody said objectivity. So, you know, objectivity and reflexivity, um, I, I'm sure that as we go on, as we continue this conversation, uh, yes. we'll definitely be talking about reflexivity as we go along. Of course, of course, that's my all time favorite thing. And sometimes <laughs> that is one of the most difficult things because it can, um, you know, one is always afraid that if uh, I bring in my own feelings and own um, uh, nuances into the research, uh, is it, I, do I, does it really even have a place there? 
Okay, and in qualitative research, reflexivity is very, very critical. And in, of course, in phenomenology, you cannot be writing a phenomenology unless you bring in reflexivity at the very end and say, what did you assume? And if you were to do it all over again, how would your design unfold? And things of that nature. And you to, sort of, to a positivist mind, oh my goodness, what the heck are these talking about? Because the research is always removed from the research right? in a manner of speaking. So this is, this is great. And so if we look at this slide, I just wanted to also um, have Kirti talk to us a little bit about this because I pulled out this from a very nice resource, Hammersley and Atkinson. I'd be happy to send this to you. Um, they've done a phenomenal job uh, of uh, really unpacking uh, ethnography in a way that people can really truly understand. So uh, because of the meanings and interpretations and the, uh, the different streams that are emerging in, in ethnography, there's an overlap. So people confuse with uh, you know, qualitative inquiry, field work, interpretative method, case study. They're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. If they're looking at case study method, they're saying, well, but I'm doing this case study method. So where does ethnography come into the picture? Or if I'm doing qualitative inquiry, so what am I really doing? So that is a challenge. And I've also talked to other researchers who have always feel that the waters are getting muddied when you think of ethnography. So Kirti, what would you like to say about that? About uh, how can we in our minds sort this out and know what it is that we are really doing? I think that we, we need to understand, right? Ethnography is also the two aspects to it, that's how I understand it, that it's a, it's a philosophical tradition, uh, ethnography, uh, and which I'm sure that, you know, it's the same with the phenomenological uh, Yes, approaches. it is very much true, yeah. So it's, it's a philosophical paradigm in itself. And at the same time, it's also a method. Um, and so, so let me try, you know, you, you brought in the idea of case study. So for example, what I do, if I look at the macro structure, what I do is actually a case study. So I take an organization, which is a case of something, but in understanding the phenomena of interest, uh, so I study sustainability and climate change responses. So in, in order to study that, in order to explain why, what is, what is happening, right? I use ethnography uh, to understand, to make sense of what is happening. Uh, and because it's ethnography, right? So what, what happens is um, my focus is on people, you know, their actions. What is it that they are doing? How can I make sense of how this group behavior sort of, you know, emerges at the organizational level? And then comes the idea of, you know, the tools that you use. And this is where, you know, when we talk about ethnography, um, in my conversations, a lot of people think that ethnography equals observations. That is not true. Um, ethnography is interviews, ethnography is conversations, it's observations as well. So ethnography, when we think of ethnography, the, the different tools that are available. And one of my favorite tools, and I think that um, it, it doesn't get the recognition that it should, is documents. Um, and since I exactly. specifically work with organizations, I can tell you, you know, things like minutes of meeting, company annual reports, emails that people send to each other. These are all, you know, the different tools that we use in ethnography. So it's not just observations, right? And it's a very iterative process. You, you go for an observation, something strikes, 
right? You want to sort of delve into it even deeper. You go and have an interview later on, or you have a conversation later on, or you figure out, you know, you've read something, you know, something in a minutes of meeting where somebody came up with a drastic change and you want to know why this happened. So you identify those individuals and you go and talk to them. So uh, I think, uh, let us, you know, uh, understand that ethnography has all these tools. It's not just observation. Uh, it could be, like I said, it's documents, it's, you know, uh, virtual uh, uh, ethnographies, it's emails that people are sending to each other. Um, these days, you know, especially because of Corona, we're all working online, the chat boxes. I mean, just imagine the, the data that's there right now. Oh my God, it's an enormous data. That's... Right? Yeah. This is, this is all the tools that we use in ethnography. So, so this idea that I have to just observe. Observation is obviously key because, you know, we want to understand, like I said, it's important to understand the unconscious actions, right? And when we ask people, they don't always recall or they don't always know if it's important or not. Um, for example, in my case, a lot of my participants, um, you know, they would, they would sort of bracket and tell me things because they would assume uh, that this is not important for her to know. Oh, and, uh, nice. and, and it will happen, right? It will happen because they would think that, let me tell her this, because I think this is really important for her. Uh, but that wasn't always the case, right? So I was in, because I work on routines, I'm actually interested in even, you know, you might think something is not important, but it's important for my research. So that's where ethnography and observation are important. But let us understand that ethnography is not equal to observation. It's a whole set of methods that are available to us. So documents, interviews, conversations are there. And then let's think of these, you know, I talked about this idea that there is a spectrum, whether you want to be just to fly on the wall and be reporting what is going on, right? It could be a very descriptive study where we're just reporting this is going on very, so it's still, you know, you're still very detached. You're observing, but from a distance or it could be a very extreme immersion where you might actually be working for the organization. Um, I have a lot of uh, friends who have worked as consultants and then they have used that consulting project as a research project as well, because they're heavily involved in what is happening in the organization. Um, so to just to summarize, I think we need to understand that ethnography is a paradigm so you can have a case study, like I said, you know, when I design my project, design is still a case study because I'm looking at a particular organization. I'm studying one type of um, a phenomena or about organizational behavior. But in studying that, I'm using, I'm drawing from ethnography to understand what is happening. So I'm using it to explain uh, what is happening inside the organization. Wow, and I just wanted to, if I may piggyback on what uh, Dr. Kirti just said, uh, I'd made a few notes uh, <clears throat> before the Zoom session through this resource, Hammersley and Atkinson. And what they said, analysis of data involves interpretation of the meanings, functions, and consequences of human actions and institutional practices, all right? And so the, you know, the product is the verbal descriptions as you, know, you said, the minutes of the meeting or yeah, I, 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 it was even my mind raced back to when I was um, in uh, probably elementary school at DPS. And I'm thinking about all the water cooler conversations that used to happen. You know, you, you, you huddled around the water cooler, everybody's trying to get to that. But before they can get to that, they're having, oh, this teacher said this or the teacher said that. All of that becomes data. 
Am I, am I right, Kirti? Even that yeah. informal, what we would normally dismiss as inconsequential yeah. is a part of the study. Yeah. And to be able to really be mindful about that, but somebody had raised her hand and I forget who it was. Uh, if you've raised your hand, can you just raise your hand again? Because I don't want to uh, miss hearing from you. Somebody's hand. Avantika, somebody had raised their hand. Is anybody's hand up? Okay, I guess not. So um, two of the other things that I also jumped out at me as I was reading the text was uh, this autoethnography and this virtual ethnography now, which are very, which is very, very, especially in the day and age we are in right now with everything is going virtual. So uh, if Kirti, you can just uh, speak to both of these. I would you know, start by saying, so I've actually had, a, um, I can talk more about the autoethnography purely because uh, I had a colleague um, mm. who was involved in that. Um, so it's a very interesting study. And I think there are a couple of people from marketing so they, they'll understand. Um, so, you know, in, in, in supermarkets, we have the checkout, uh, checkout people. Um, and uh, this this uh, colleague of mine actually wanted to, uh, uh, to 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 understand the routines of these checkout people. Like you know, how do you greet the customer? If you know, if you you actually point them for uh, some last minute buys and things like that. And so um, she actually worked at a supermarket as a checkout person to mm. understand the phenomena in detail. So this was an autoethnography because she was talking about the routines of these checkout um, individuals and she herself was uh, a checkout um, person. Uh, so, so the idea that, you know, your auto is, you know, your own. So, um, and uh, I've, I've come across uh, some work done in uh, gender studies as well, where uh, people have used autoethnographies. Now, virtual ethnography, um, as the name kind of suggests, it's you know, uh, it, it's 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 about it, it's it's studying the um, you know some people say cyber ethnography. It's basically online ethnography. So it's it's you know you you're using online uh, research methods. Um, unfortunately, haven't done it. Uh, don't really know a lot of people who have done it. Uh, but like I said, it's something that has caught my attention, probably because of the COVID scenario because there's a lot of um, online, uh, I, I personally feel there's a lot of online data. Um, even things, you know, I mentioned uh, the chat boxes, but I think that even things like Twitter um, and uh, Facebook forums, for example, uh, there's a lot of uh, data there. And if you're trying to study how people behave, um, I think that that's 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 going to be really useful. Um, I really believe, I think uh, I've already had a conversation with my own PhD student that we need to understand online ethnography um, uh, given the current scenario. So, but I do apologize that I have, I have done it. <laughs> so um, my understanding is very textbook oriented right now. Yeah, the two, two, two absolutely amazing books um, and, and, and I, I, I confess I've not really read them yet, but I have bought them with the idea that I'm going to read it. One is Life Online. You're going to hear about Annette Markham's work. Very, Thanks. very popular work. It's this one. All right. And the other one is Virtual Ethnography by Christine Hein. Okay. All right. So anybody that's interested in really going, delving deep into virtual ethnography would... Um, 
would would do well to read uh, these two texts. I think they're just both wonderful um, pieces of writing. So, um, so I just thought I'd just share that with you because as someone who entered uh, virtuality and 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 the world of cyberspace back in the mid '90s, believe it or not. Oh boy, it must be really, really old. Oh my God, mid nineties. So when the internet started to become available to the public, I immersed myself in the internet and did a lot of creative work in that. So I, the internet has always been a very, very fascinating space for me. It's so amorphous, so boundaryless, right? And yet the, because of the disinhibition effect, uh, which can work both as a double-edged sword, people will likely not say to each other what they would say on the internet, right? Because on the internet, you can say something to somebody which is pejorative uh, and then pull the plug because you don't have to be in that room anymore, right? But it's difficult to escape if you're in a physical space. So it's it's an awesome thing. I don't want to digress from that, but, but anybody wanting to do the virtual ethnography, it is a ripe, it's a ripe field right now because there's so much data that is available at your fingertips. And all of these platforms like LinkedIn and Facebook and all that, they archive your data and actually you can ask for the archive data, bring it back in to study. So great, great. Uh, so um, let, let me just go to the next one. Just a little bit of the historical roots, the origins of ethnography. So it has its roots in 19th century Western anthropology. And I'm gonna ask uh, Kirti to talk to us about this a little bit, just to understand the history. We typically, a descriptive account of a culture or community outside the Western hemisphere. So when it really first started, it was called ethnology, okay? And ethnology was everything outside of one's own native place. So all these ethnographers, field workers, field researchers went outside so it was okay. So we are not concerned with what's happening inside our country, but we are have more concerned with what's happening in Iraq, what's happening in India, what's happening in wherever, Timbuktu. So as the field emerged more and, and progressed and, and became more inclusive, the field work started uh, to encompass also what is happening within one's own native country, right? Um, so, and, and what you're doing is you're going native, you'll hear the word expression going native, you're immersed, you are embedded within a small group or system. And what actually in my reading, uh, I realized was that even though you're doing a uh, ethnography of a very large organization, uh, you typically look at small segments of that company because you don't want to take on the whole thing unless you have a field of co-ethnographers who are also working with you within that organization because there's so many different facets, so many different organizational systems that you're trying to explore. So because ethnography goes so deep into stuff, okay, it's important to be able to tackle it in bite-sized segments, all right? And I'm sure uh, Kirti will talk to it about it. And also because of its complex history, ethnography does not have a standard definition or framework, okay? 
It's left to one's interpretation of how one is mobilizing that study. So Kirti, if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about it from your own experiences. So uh, like I said, you know, I work, like I said, mostly with organizations and uh, the, the study that I'm talking about is what I did for my PhD work. Um, so very much interested in sustainability and I wanted to understand uh, how do organizations respond to climate change. And um, as we do in any kind of, you know, qualitative research, um, we're not after statistical generalizability, right? So we're not, um, so when we look at, we think of sampling, it has to be very purposive sampling. Um, so I specifically therefore targeted the energy sector, because if we think of climate change, then burning coal is the key contributor to the warming of the planet. Um, so I was very fortunate to get uh, access to uh, one of the largest um, energy companies in the country. And so that sort of, you know, that means uh, going native, you know, so that became my research site. Um, something that's really important is I think when we're doing ethnographies, uh, if you are talking about, you know, going into a community, if you're talking about going into an organization, I think two things are very, very critical. Uh, one is the ethics of research. We have to be very careful because with ethnography, as you would see, right, we are entering into people's lives, be it professional life when you are studying organizations or when you're going and studying in communities. We are entering into their lives and I think it's really important that we do this with a lot of ethics, making sure that our participants understand what is happening with the data, being always respectful. And I think being honest, you know, truth is really important. Um, a lot of my um, colleagues have, you know, asked me this, that how was it that you were able to get absolute access to one of the largest, you know, private sector company, that too, getting them to talk about climate change. You know, it's a company which has the highest number of um, uh, emissions and it is, you know, owns the largest coal mines in the country. And they have allowed you to enter into their organization and basically do whatever you want to. And I think that's where the honesty came in. Very clear, honest communication about what the research is, um, how does it impact the participants, and what is it that we are offering? For example, uh, one of the things that happens in organization research is at times participants could expect that you know, you're going to come in as a consultant and help them solve a problem. So I was very honest from day one, that's not my job. I'm not going to tell you how to respond to climate change. That's, that's not what I'm doing this research for. So those two things really helped me negotiate access. And um, I cannot you know, be more, I, I don't know how to sort of you know, uh, talk about how important it is that we develop a very, very good relationship with our participants uh, when we're talking about ethnography uh, because it's a long-term immersion. You know, you don't just go in for a day. You don't. Um, there will be, you know, there will be so many, you will have so many reflective conversations with your participants. You know, you'll sit and have lunch and dinner with them. So it's really important um, that, you know, when going native, when you're going to be entering into somebody's life, professional life, personal life, it's really important that we develop a good relationship with these people. Um, there have been times, you know, when I was done with data collection and I was writing my thesis, and then, you know, it would suddenly strike me, oh, I wish I had, you know, talked a little bit more about this point. And because I had a good relationship with my participants, I could do that. I could immediately give them a call and say, you know, um, you talked about this. And at that time, I didn't think of this, uh, but now I want some more information. Could, could you, could I, could I come and see you? 
Um, one of the things that I did um, for my, in terms of that, you know, going uh, native, um, I'm talking about, you know, Western, uh, you know, an Australian public sector, uh, private sector company. So mostly we're talking about white, Caucasian, males, females, more uh, men as well. Um, I made it a point to always be dressed in formals to an extent where, you know, one of the secretaries did tell me that, Keithi, you don't have to. Um, but I think that was very important. Um, you know, it gives you that respect. Um, it shows that you are committed as a researcher. Uh, so always very nicely dressed up, always showing, you know, before, like if I have an interview at two, for example, or if I'm shadowing a meeting, um, which starts at 12, being there at 11.30, being, you know, very smartly dressed up, um, understanding the language. Now, um, I was entering into the energy sector. Um, I have for I, this project, I had no understanding of the technicalities of the energy sector. Um, I don't think I still do. Um, but this is what, you know, I actually ended up doing a course to understand how energy is traded in the market, purely because my participants were always talking about those terms. So for example, when you're interviewing somebody, right, and they're going to use jargons, because for them, it's not a jargon, it's their daily conversational language. But preparing beforehand, really helps. It helps you get into conversations. It helps you understand your participants really, really well. And again, it comes back to that respect, right? I'm entering into your professional life. So I have made an effort to understand what is it that you do. I would, you know, I would, I would, I would stalk my participants if I knew who I was going to speak with, or who are the people who will be at a meeting that I'm going to be following. I would understand everything about them, right? That what is their designation? How long have they been working in the organization? And all of that helped me in, you know, having those informal conversations where they would be like, you know, and, and it's little things. So for example, uh, I did my postgraduate in Australia as well. So there were a lot of people who had graduated from my university. So I would find that out and I would use that as an anchor. But like, you know, you are also an alumni of my um, university. I went and studied there. Who did you have? And just like that, you know, you start a conversation and you get such rich insights uh, from your participants. So it, it, this may seem like it's, it's, it's um, you know, it, it's little things, but I think that's where ethnography, um, the, the pre-preparation phase. When we say interviews, you can just have your interview guide, you know, you can try out your interview guide with your peers, your friends, your colleagues. Um, ethnography, the pre-preparation is crucial. It's, it's very important that we plan for it because the, the more you are planned in your preparation stage, the better it's going to get towards the later, you know, later parts of your work. It's going to help you, you know, that immersion is going to be rich. You'll be able to extract and learn uh, from your participants if you have spent some time in planning. Now, one of the studies that I'm work currently working on right now is actually CSR. And uh, this is based um, in India, it's based in Udaipur. Um, and I have to go and spend time in communities. Now, so for this, there's a different uh, planning. And again, you know, it might seem quite trivial, but the thing is, I actually have to think about what is it that I'm going to wear? How am I going to talk to people? Um, do, you know, I'm, I cannot go and talk because I'm a woman. I cannot go directly talk to the men there. I need to have maybe a representative from the NGO who introduces me first. Right? I cannot use people's first name. I need to limit my use of you know, my mobile phone as well. It's not considered polite for that community. All of this is pre-planning. 
and it is so essential so this is the idea of you know going native means that there is a lot of planning and effort that we have to put in um and the other thing that really it helps you with is uh, because we want to get like i said you know ethnography is all about the unconscious actions the unconscious behaviors so your participants right they need to feel that there is no fly on the wall you're one mm. of us right you're one of us i feel right. you know i trust you so much you're not are you not somebody out there you know with your camera with your um with your phone recording right 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 excellent so i think you've really unpacked for us um, the, the going native because a lot of people get confused about this expression going native and they throw it around as though you know it's just something footloose it really there is a there is a way you go native and going native requires a lot of prerequisites there's a lot of negotiation that has to happen there has to be has been agreement bilateral agreement so i see that siddhant had raised his hand so i don't want to pass that over so siddhant did, did you have a question for us yes so uh, i had a question particularly with the native going native uh, thing so i have an experience of working with uh, communities in ghana and in african countries uh, and that's when i had a uh, not a, a like a very long uh, immersion session but i had a, a, an observing and a, and a participation and an immersion session there so two questions there the first was i i struggled a lot with uh, dealing with the outsider treatment that you get there because there it's it's even bigger because there is a, a racial difference there so even like to like to to offset that would take a really really long time to really build rapport with, with with those people so how do you deal with the outsider treatment in such cases and the other question was also leading was also connecting to the language issue that you talked to uh there there was a different spoken language altogether so i had a translator with me but then again there are so many things that are missed out so how do you offset the effects of you know translation in an ethnographic setting right uh, yeah, so so sidant so is doing some wonderful work uh, as a matter of fact he's one of your i am um, sidant you were at i am bangalore right for a while calcutta yeah i calcutta, was yeah. at i am calcutta believe it or not uh, after how many months did you leave the program uh eight months it after eight months at imc which people would die to get into he leaves the program and goes to stanford yeah. to study amazing guys i mean i hey so you got it like at the back of the hey so what did the im calcutta it's, it's a piece of cake you know just do the exam and get in there and stanford what the hell i can get into stanford anybody so amazing congratulations for doing that and for achieving all of that and congratulations for um, for all of that um, accomplishment uh, it it's it's certainly not something to sneeze at it's uh, it's very challenging so i appreciate uh, you being here with us um one thing that i wanted to talk about which actually uh, has been jumping out at me is something uh, called foreshadowed problems it's kind of like although i'm i'm certain it's not the same as bracketing in a qualitative research but foreshadowed problems is stuff that is at the back of your mind as you're getting into an ethnography okay and so how do so, so this is to kirti so how do you remain exploratory in your mind open unstructured and all that while dealing with these foreshadowed problems so how do you keep those aside okay in order to be totally open 
Absolutely. So this is where I think that um, there are a couple of things that I do. Um, the first one is as a PhD student, you will always have your you know, supervisors. Please use them to have reflective conversations. Um, uh, making sure that you know uh, they're constantly asking you questions. Like I would, um, after every three or four days of my uh, field work, I would uh, come back and have these two, three hour long conversations for them to challenge me that, you know, is there anything that um, I have missed out? The second thing is using templates. And um, I'm a very traditional paper pencil person. <laughs> um, and I cannot, like the templates have helped me so much. So whenever I do any sort of field work, you know, even simple interviews, um, I tend to use um, blank A4 sheets. And whenever I go for observations, First of all, it's all going to be very, very descriptive. Absolutely everything and anything that I see. Obviously, there's a little bit, you know, creative um, imagination has to be there. So, you know, things that are connected to my phenomena, very, very descriptive most. And I divide that paper, right? So I have my A4 sheets. The second one is always, the second sort of the, the column that I have is always connections to existing framework. Right, because um, as somebody, um, um, you know, I, I, I'm a PhD students and academics would understand, right? We all have our theoretical baggages now. Um, you know, so I'm like, for example, um, I'll start thinking about routines um, or, you know, I start thinking about processes because uh, that, that's something that I like to do. That's something I do. So, so automatically I'll start thinking, okay, you know, maybe this is somewhere an institutionalization of routine is happening. So that's coming from my preconceived theoretical frameworks that I have. So I write them down. And the second one, um, so that the third column is always something new. Absolutely, you know, everything that was exciting, you know, maybe I have an inkling that this could be connected to gender, I'll write it down, it's not really my focus area, but I'll write it down. Okay, maybe there's something about culture, which um, could be important, or maybe something about racial discrimination and things like that. And I still write those themes down. And then, um, you know, I used to uh, joke about this, uh, but in all seriousness, um, when I used to go for my observations, I used to spend a lot of time sitting in the washroom. Reason being that after that, you know, after nine to five um, observing, being in, the, being in the office, that immediate reflection is very, very critical. So as soon as, you know, everybody would be packing up to leave for home, I would be holed up in the washroom, frantically writing down the connections, right? That if I thought of gender, why did I think of gender there? Or if I thought about culture, why did I think about culture? You know, if I had made a note about what somebody was wearing, uh, in my case, uh, because, you know, there was a lot of meetings between stakeholders. So it's important to understand the power dynamics. Why is it that X only sits on this side of the table? Why did I make a point of this? What was I thinking? Maybe a paper I have read, or maybe a conversation that I had with the colleague. So, um, I know it, it, it can be very overwhelming, but immediate reflection is very, very crucial. You don't have to do it for three, four hours together, but once that day is over, try to very quickly take a notebook, you know, and these days, you know, we have great technology and like me, if you're not that old, you can just record your reflections, right? On your way back, back home, you're just recording your reflections, but make sure that you do it as soon as possible even with interviews, it is so critical that we go through that reflection, reflective exercise as soon as possible, because like um, Dr. Nalil said, um, something new, you know, which is in our head, we might right. not be able to recall that. 
and that right. will only happen when we you know that these um because I, like i was sharing in the beginning uh i've not been you know i've not been trained in ethnography but uh, it it emerged as the best tool for me to answer my research problems for my thesis yeah. and day one when i went into this organization and i thought you know i i've got it right how difficult can this be i have read everything you know i have I've read uh, hamersley and atkinson word by word so how difficult could this right. be Right. and i returned and i'm kidding you know that i had a migraine and i did not wow. know i had already, i had finished three notebooks and i wasn't sure what will you know and it's just day one right. and i immediately you know called my supervisors and we you know then sat down and developed those templates um, yeah. you know you have some code names for people in the meeting where the meetings yeah. are what is it that you're observing and things like that those templates right. are crucial um, right. make them for your own work a work with your colleagues and peers to make sure so like i said i think ethnography the more you prepare before getting into the field the better insights you're going to get right excellent point and ashwarya naik has um, um, i'm so sorry hand. to cut you off dr anil but javed has already asked a question 10 minutes ago uh, in oh, the chat okay. box so okay. may and, i just, and, and uh, just repeat that totally, question you're totally amazing because avantika was just going to say Are you keeping an eye on the chat box? <laughs> Boy, I tell you, we are that's totally in sync. Wonderful. So that's great. Just repeat so, what uh, so Javed asked. Let's let's give it to Javed first, and then then we can have Ashwari. And I I believe um, uh, 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 Mr. Chandra has also raised his hand, right? Yes, he raised his hand before. Okay, he raised his hand right. before. Okay, excellent. So, so go ahead. I'll Javed. just repeat. Uh, actually, he has written his question in the chat box, so I'll just repeat that. Okay. Okay. So he asks how to handle ethical challenges to engaging, treating uh, online conversational environments as compared to traditional field work. Can you catch that, Kirti? Um. So, uh, just wanting to understand, Javed, when you say ethical challenges, are you talking about uh, things like anonymity or? Uh, how we handle the data like seeking permission what do you mean by ethical challenges here have we have we lost javed he's not here is he going to write back the answer or uh, or the question or i think till then you can answer ashwarya's question yes yes ashwarya can wait go ahead for javed's answer take, take it away ashwarya go ahead Uh, hello again so uh, my question was as an ethnographer you are immersing yourself in the setting itself amongst the people that you're studying to an extent that you're around them all the time and and, and these are long term commitments so i'm i'm just imagining after a point of time it's bound to have an effect on how you see yourself as well because that's the kind of people you have and that's the kind of culture you're in and that's kind of norms that you're following So, how do you set lines in, you know, understanding yourself and being aware and setting boundaries and how much you're going to change yourself to accommodate this research? And how how do you go about looking at yourself and taking care of yourself of yourself as a researcher through this? I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if I may, uh, lead on. Um, uh, how I wish there was an answer, a perfect answer to this. Uh, but such an important um, point you've raised, Ashwarya, that what happens to you as a researcher, and I don't think it's just uh, about ethnography. Um, 
with qualitative because the researcher is so connected to you know the problem they are studying or the phenomena they're studying it does impact you um more so in certain settings um for example uh, like i shared one of my recent works you know working with community and csr um i like i said you know i'm not there working as a government agent that i can help the community but of course you're exposed to the challenges that the community is facing i'm sure siddharth would also agree here that you know you, you and sometimes you know community members they start having expectations of you um so it's really important that um, you are very clear from the very beginning that's that, that's not your role um it has been a, a bit challenging for me uh, right now with that project um, where you know i've had to be very clear that listen i'm not here from the government i do understand that there are uh, certain structural challenges because of which you know funding doesn't reach you uh, or you know the, your pakka house is not uh, yet pakka even though the government has given the funds and i really you know even though i come from delhi i actually cannot go <laughs> to the pmo and tell them that you you know take your application so i have to be very clear the ngo helps me a lot in this um so maybe just also connecting to what siddhant had asked that how do you um you know go into the community how do you build connections with them and how do you get to um, you know sort of make them trust you um uh, village elders community elders going and spending time with them uh, finding um topics that um, that are common to you does help um so for example in my case um you know people do look at me and go you know you're a woman and uh, here you are talking about all these things uh, but the moment i start telling them that um, you know my my family also has um, has a rural background and we also have uh, farmlands and i grew up uh, visiting villages and that's where my grandparents were immediately you see that you know uh, you could see the change on their faces and you see the trust now in terms so it's really important ashwara that there is a bit of self preservation and you don't get lost um you also need to have some self discipline uh there will be challenges especially when you're going into communities you will come across challenges but is that why you are there right are you there as an evaluator are you going to be you know are you there as a as a problem solver if that's the goal of your program um, you know that's why you want to take an ethnography then it's good um but uh, speaking for myself you know as an academic uh, even though i might say that i'm a bit of a critical scholar um i i i take uh, you know i i'm okay with the fact that you know my role in this is is to bring those uh, challenges to the forefront but right now i'm not really resolving them uh, probably it's for somebody else to um, to to do that task uh making sure that um you know those reflective conversations are very important uh since and as you said you know ethnography because of the immersion um please make sure that uh, you know you know the field very well you're taking care of yourself like i said you know those um, like for example sometimes we just forget to even bring lunch with us now here's the thing right you can't really work on an empty stomach um so making sure that uh, you know you're well rested for example if you know that you have an entire day of observing make sure that you are rested properly um what i usually do is before i won't go into the field i just go through my template once so that you know it's it's it my head um and i make sure that you know i'm i'm energized i've taken good rest making sure that you know your your basic needs are being uh, taken care of um if possible um you know try and um, 
I know as a PhD student, that um, option might not be there for you, but if you can work in groups, um, that also helps in taking the load away from you. A lot of ethnographers do work in groups so that, you know, uh, it's not just one person. And then lastly, like I said, you know, the, the more time you spend in the field connecting with your participants, um, at least for me, I get a lot of energy from the participants just being there or just being grateful because they are allowing me to, um, you know, to enter into their lives and to study them. Um, so, so that kind of keeps me going. Uh, but I do get your point and I wish there was, you know, a strategy that we could follow, which would make it less overwhelming. Um, right. and, let, and let me be very straightforward, ethnography, field data can be very, very overwhelming. Um, but we have to manage, you know, manage uh, that sort of, um, that comes with the field work. Yeah, so thanks, Kirti. So, so Siddhant and Jayati also have uh, questions. So Siddhant, right. why don't you go first, right? Uh, Siddhant has already asked his question. Oh, you've already yes. asked the question? Jayati, yes, okay. yes, it's Jayati's turn. Okay, Jayati, go Hi. ahead. Thank you. Um, so I've been hearing Ms. Keithi, you know, talking about reflections and the entire process of reflexivity. So my question comes from a place like when you go as a researcher, you do assume a sense of positionality. You have a particular position of how you do research. So when you, you know, so when you do research, how do you end up differentiating between being reflexive, being reflective and being introspective? Like, is there a line that you draw? Or are all these processes, you know, just labeled like that, but they're overlapping? Like, I'm confused. Um, it, so, my, in the, you know, the way I think about these three terms that you've pointed out, I think they happen twice. The first one is obviously when you are in that, uh, you know, when you are engaging in field work, uh, where you're constantly, you know, asking those questions, like I said, you know, taking down these notes that, why is it that I find something interesting? Why is it that I think this is not interesting enough? Uh, what am I projecting? What kind of theoretical frameworks am I using to, you know, what lenses am I using? The second thing is this exercise also happens when you write. You know, the, so uh, there's a lot of resources on uh, reflexive writing. Um, and um, if you need a resource, you know, Matt Salveson, uh, he has written a lot and he talks about, you know, this art of reflexive writing. So I think this happens in these two steps, while you're engaging in field work, while you're you know, going through making sense of that. And when you start writing, that's again, when you will, you know, you'll have a conversation with, the, with what you're doing, what you're writing, and then it becomes more clear what's, what's the difference. Or at least that's, that's how I have understood this. Um, Dr. Anil, you might have a different uh, take on this. No, 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 and, 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 and you know, and, and before we, um go to, uh, I know Jatis was just asking the question, right? Abhishek. Yes, there are two question. more questions on the chat box as well. Okay, so just before we do that, I wanted to, because I didn't want to forget that train of thought about, you mentioned a couple of times, uh, Kirti, about this research phenomena, correct? Mm -hmm. So my question to you would be, and I'm sure this is on the minds of other people also who heard me talk about phenomenology and grounded theory and all of that stuff, uh, in, especially in phenomenology, uh, you know, people confuse the research topic with the research question with the research phenomena. So they, 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 they say, oh, I have the research topic, so I know what the phenomena is. Well, I said, the research topic is not your phenomena. What is it that you're after? So they say, what do you mean? What is it that I'm after? What is keeping you awake at night about this study? Okay. Yeah. 
I don't quite understand, sir. So for, I give them an example. So if, if the example of a research question would be, what is it like? And this is a phenomenological research question. I didn't mean to digress, but I bring this back in here for a reason. What is it like for an engaged employee to be working in a predominantly virtual organization? And so I tell them, if this was the research question, what is the research phenomena? So somebody will say virtuality, somebody will say something else, but they're not able to narrow down on what the research phenomena is. And in phenomenology is very important. Otherwise you could go down a wrong rabbit hole if you don't know what you're researching because your interview schedule, your interview design, everything methodology has to be around that research question or research phenomena. So in this example that I gave you, the research phenomena is employee engagement, okay? Yeah. But it doesn't jump out at somebody. So my question to you would be, in ethnography, is it important going in to have already established a research phenomena in your mind? What is it that you're researching? So that would be my question to you. Absolutely, I think that it's important for any qualitative work. Um, you know, hmm. that's why I think I said, you know, I, I, I like Carl White's uh, phrase, you know, disciplined imagination. Um, otherwise, what is it that you're observing? If, if I don't know what, it, what, what I'm going to, you know, what is it that I'm interested in? So, for example, my own study, right? Um, I'm specifically interested in understanding the power dynamics in stakeholder negotiation. Um, so, you know, then from there I start, you know, what kind, what is it that I want to be observing? You know, what specific meetings do I want to be a part of? Uh, what kind of, um, you know, CSR projects uh, do I want to be seeing in action? Otherwise, where is, you know, where is that discipline? What is it that you're observing? But having said that, it, it does allow you, you know, even within that, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of opportunity to be creative. There's a lot of things that are unexplored, even with that. Um, in fact, um, I stress this to my PhD students. Tell me what is it that you want to study? And the, the phrasing, right? The question phrasing, how, why, what, we'll work on it. But at least in a couple of words, tell me what interests you, what is it that we are studying? And then I tell them, please, if, if you have chosen to do a qualitative study, whichever method you, you know, finalize, but if it's going to be an exploration, then I need you to print that out and write it and, and post it in front of you so that you're constantly seeing that this is what I was studying. Because like you said, right, you know, if the focus is engagement, but then the individual goes and, you know, starts working on virtuality, it's a different study. Right. right? Not, that, right. not that virtuality is not important. Virtuality yeah, as a context is very important. Very important, yeah. But not yeah. for you right now, right? So we, we have to work exactly. you know, the boundaries of the research problem that we have started. Uh, yeah. So I, um, if I'm, I might, I mean, this is a very, it's a, it's a very um, simple textbook, but uh, Cresswell has this, you know, the five uh, methodologies textbook. Yes. yes. And in that, he actually has a template. Now, I'm not saying that's the best template, but if you're starting out, try using that template and that will make you very disciplined. I use that for right. my people students that you need to have some discipline some discipline some te template so abhishek uh, uh, who's next Avantika? Um, uh, we have garima priya and then abhishek so garima okay, and priya have asked their questions in the chat box so i'll just uh, go ahead please uh, speak the questions yes sure so garima asks that given that this is such a dynamic environment and requires much of the researchers involvement i wanted to ask if there is 
there is sort of researcher method fit here or is it skill that can be learned hmm interesting so i don't actually i i you know i always say it's never a researcher method fit it's the problem and method fit what is it you are trying to study um you know don't come and tell me i want to do an ethnography just for the sake of doing an ethnography you tell oh, me God. what you want to understand and then we'll decide if ethnography is the best way to find an answer um you know so it always starts with that that idea of you know um, some people had asked you know what is a paradigm so it does start from there um you know that how do i think of the world if i think that the world resides in you know in people's doings in in everyday you know common sense knowledge is where i can find theory from then yes i'll go and you know study people and i'll do an ethnography but if that's not my paradigm and if that's not my research question then you are not going to fit a method there and of course it is a skill i think this is this is what we started with right that all of us are here today to learn that skill um and uh, believe me you know just today with this interaction i think that uh, it's been a great exercise like you know there have been like i have so many questions now <laughs> and um, so so you know it's it's definitely something that we can uh, learn and this is what this platform is uh, for um, and right. i think you know when when i read that um, you were doing this that's what i thought that it's what a wonderful opportunity for people who are interested in in maybe you know broader qualitative work and ethnography because now each one of us is a resource correct right Right. Um, so, so I think absolutely, you know. That, so don't make it. Don't think of it as a research method fit. Always think of it. You know, your research problem phenomena comes first. What is it that you are interested in? Like Sir said, what is it that's keeping you awake at night? And, what, and I was smiling as we were talking to us because it. It. I. I was reminiscing about the number of times that my doctoral students have said to me, "Sir, after attending your phenomenology course." so i've fallen in love with phenomenology so i'm going to only do phenomenology i said well, wait a second but what is your research question so why why do i need a research question i love the phenomenological approach i love ipa i'm going to do that well wait a second you don't fall in love with somebody without knowing who that person is right you really have to understand each other there's got to be a process of courtship dating whatever but you don't even have a research question and you've already jumped into the research design and so i'm going to do 20 interviews because phenomenology ipa is saying 20 interviews i'll do 20 interviews i'll do it semi structured they give me all the vernacular the jargon i said i've heard all that before what is your research question so why why is that research question important because you if you don't have your research question down how can you decide what methodology is going to best address that research question what kind of design you are going to have so so you brought up a very important interesting point uh, dr mishra about this uh, this knowing what you are after as you go into the research right so garima thank you for raising that and who else uh, avantika i had the question uh, we have priya priya priya's question and then abhishek so priya asks when the nature of data collected is different example interview service etc how do we bring it together Oh, you. So if if I'm putting this right, you know, through these different tools, right? So, interviews, observations, we're still connecting because we're still answering that same research question. So, for example, when um, 
and, and again, I'm sorry because I'm going to contextualize it and use my own work as an example. Um, I bring all of that data and then my first level of analysis is always creating very composite narratives, like what has happened. Um, and this again is driven by this, uh, you know, because so, I, I, I predominantly um, believe in you know, the process ontology that we're, we're thinking of, you know, constantly becoming. Uh, so narratives are very important. So then I pool all of this data, right? Things that I've learned from interviews. Um, uh, and if you're interested, Anne Langley, she talks about this idea of temporal bracketing. So I start, you know, first I'll start mm. for chronological orders, you know, 1990, all of this happened. And in that, I'm going to draw upon everything, right? Observations, interviews, my documents, etc. Um, you know, historical data analysis is also quite useful. So, so for me, that's, you know, I bring all of this and I make a composite narrative of what is happening. Uh, so for example, because I was looking at routines, uh, one of the routines was risk management. So everything pertaining to risk management is made into one composite narrative. Um, so I make all these different narratives, pulling in everything that I've collected through observations, conversations, my field notes, um, and um, um, you, you've mentioned surveys here, so I'm not so sure how you know the survey uh, data would fit in. Like if you're talking about a mixed method approach, uh, then it would be very different. Um, so you know we can have qualitative study, we can have quant studies, and then we have mixed methods. Um, in right. mixed method, the way you would use your qualitative and survey data is going to be different. What I have talked about is a purely qualitative approach. Okay, who's next? Uh, I want to... uh, Abhishek. Abhishek. Abhishek, go ahead. You know, it wonderfully, the discussion just came to my question in the very end. Uh, Dr. Misha, so helpful listening. It's such a pleasure. And uh, Dr. Bell, sir, I know you asked me to not call you sir, but anyways, uh, so informative. My question is, how do I mix uh, quantitative studying with qualitative studying so that I can reinforce that qualitative uh, reflection or uh, understanding that I have? You also mentioned, Madam, uh, that you used to maintain a column where you used to write things that were related to the topics that you wanted to study and be objective about it. So I think that also talks about maintaining a validity and not digressing from what you actually wanted to study. So how, how do you take care of those things when studying? Have a mixed method and keep validity also in those unstructured questions perhaps. Hello? Did we, did we lose uh, the connection with Dr. Mishra? Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm so sorry. I, have, I had internet connectivity issues. Okay, no, no I, problem. You're yeah. back. You're back. The important uh, thing is uh, you're back. Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was resolved quickly. Um, okay. So I, I didn't get the whole question, but I think I, if I do, do correct me if I haven't gotten it right. I think you were talking about reliability, validity, and how, how do you mix, you know, quantitative data and qualitative mm -hmm. data? Mm -hmm. A mixed method, a mixed method to reinforce the qualitative findings. Again, uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it, it depends upon what is it that you're trying to do. Um, you can you can start with an exploratory work where you start with qualitative data and then you want to test um, some of those insights. So then you have quantitative later on. Um, just a bit of a, you know, so um, maybe I'm a bit, um, I'm a little bit particular about these things. Um, you know, when people say reliability and validity, we need to be very clear that reliability, validity, 
in terms of quality of research, these are terms that are very positivist and uh, they take they traditionally. Thank you for sharing that. Work. And then, Thank you know, you we sort of that, draw yeah. on them. Um, in fact, what I'm going to do is um, there's a beautiful article, um, Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, Tracy 2010, which talks about quality of qualitative research. And mm. I urge all of you to have a look at that because it's really important that we understand that, you, you know, we can't compare apples and oranges, right? So what is reliability or what is quality of quantitative research? We cannot use the same ways to assess the quality of a qualitative work. These are two different things. So when you say reliability, validity, um, it does confuse me a little bit because I'm not sure what is it that we're talking about. Um, yeah. Because uh, in, in qualitative, um, we, 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 you know, we've borrowed these and very positivist. So a lot of uh, qualitative researchers, we have different ways in which we talk about um, uh, the, the quality of our work. For example, you know, thick description, the trustworthiness yes. of the data, uh, you know, making data, sure right. that, you know, you're coding, for mm -hmm. example, you know, the way that you're presenting your evidence, all of these um, are criteria for a good qualitative work um, and uh, reliability, validity, all of those, you know, um, not so important or, or you know they, they, they just don't apply to the the work that we're doing uh, because it's it's very positivist um if you're you know so for example yin does talk about validity reliability when he's speaking of case studies um and again you'll find that people have been a bit critical of that that why do we you know keep holding on to these um, traditional ways of evaluating qualitative research it's a different right. phenomenon altogether it's, it's um, a mean, totally different thing, yeah. Yeah, you could add on, but that's just my opinion that it doesn't apply here. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, for instance, um, yeah, and to, to your point, um, just to piggyback on your thought, uh, like for instance, in phenomenology, we do not attempt to define, describe, validate, refute, taxonomize, or hypothesize. And people say, well, well, where is the theory? So, but I, what, what theory am I working with? What's my theoretical framework? Well, the theoretical framework is always beneath the surface. It's always underlying that. But if your entire approach is to go with that theoretical, because it's a pre-theoretical, pre-reflective exercise. So you have to be able to, not that you shun theory totally, not that you push it out of consciousness. You're always gonna have that at the back of your mind. But while you're doing the research, you're allowing the phenomena to speak to yourself, speak to you in its most primordial and originary forms. So if you put a theoretical spin on it, right, you've already taken away from that whole endeavor. Okay, so thank you for sharing that. Avatika, who else has a question? We have Ajit first, Ajit. and then we have, wait, uh, Arunima. And after them, I think, we'll, we'll, uh, Kirti, what we can do is we can go into your presentation. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah? And then Wait. I will stop my... Huh? What? Is that fine? Yeah, works. Oh, okay, okay, works for you. Okay, great. All right. So... I was... Um, uh, go uh, ahead. So, Dr. Anil and Dr. Mishra, I was just... Uh... Go ahead. We lost a larger point to make, yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. you know, which is really around the fact that both of these, at least in the limited ways that I understand it, tend to be a lot more respectful and inclusive of human beings. 
mm-hmm. you know because they're not presupposing frameworks uh, largely they kind of really participative they allowing you to be in your own space uh, phenomenology also allows things to emerge uh, in the moment and you know as you just said it doesn't presuppose anything and therefore in some ways uh, you know they tend to be a lot more inclusive of of the people uh, that are being studied rather than you know boxing them into predefined uh, notional grids or whatever and, yeah, and yeah. by by that uh, nature itself i think it tends to be a lot more inclusive which i think as a philosophy might work a lot better in these times when we're seeing a, a you know greater polarization in the world and uh, people taking stronger stances and things getting divided a lot more uh, as research approaches probably will uh, will work much better because people tend to open up uh, possibly a lot more to these kinds of uh, inquiries or these means of approaching them and including them in a dialogue process i mean just that's right mm-hmm. who is next yeah arunima Uh, okay. she asks i wanted your insights on how we can imagine ethnography in the near future post covid scene i mean the tools we will be using and how we can ensure validity and reliability for the same great 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 so kirti if you can uh, address both ajit's question and this one uh i have to apologize i didn't really hear ajit's question because i'm still having some um, oh so internet okay connectivity issue Yeah, I'm just turn off my video so that sometimes it does help improve. Yeah, it's the bandwidth. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Okay. So if you could just summarize, maybe what what was it? I'm extremely sorry, Ajit. No, go ahead. Ajit, go ahead, please. Sure. No, I was. It was just more of um, an observation and and maybe oh. some, you know some 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 comments from uh, you, Doctor Mister and Doctor Anil. uh okay. really around the fact that because uh, ethnography and phenomenology both allow for uh, the participant to really be who they are and phenomenology also kind of doesn't presuppose anything it lets things emerge in the moment uh, yes. uh, you know allows itself for subjective experiences uh, both of these therefore are inherently a lot more inclusive is what my you know kind of really conjecture is they tend to mm-hmm. make people a lot more Uh, uh feel a lot more included rather than being boxed and being kind of really straight jacketed into uh you know scales uh and predefined uh you know ways of answering and and therefore in these times it just seems like uh, you know this is a lot more relevant uh right. you know given given the nature of how things are around the world and how people are feeling in general uh yeah which is which I is divided polarized etc i mean so i any, any i couldn't agree more what do you what do you think kirti absolutely um you know uh, the insights that we generate and you know getting to know people the, the the variations the diversity that we see um these methods do allow us to capture that more you know the 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 fact that you know these thick descriptions there's so much knowledge in that, in that and it's it's more inclusive and i think um, you know traditionally that's why when we look at you know when we go back to evaluation studies uh, around developmental evaluations um, we see that a lot a lot of people drawing on action research um and the idea being you know drawing more on uh, methods such as ethnography and uh, phenomenology to understand and evaluate developmental interventions so maybe you know that was the reason um that they're more inclusive more participatory more conversational and uh, you know um, it's 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 giving you thick data thick descriptions 
Thick dish. Yeah. So you say, uh, Tukiti, you've uh, repeated this expression, thick, which yeah. uh, if you would be so kind as to tell us a little bit more, because I think this comes up in our conversations a lot. What is thick data? So thick data is, you know, it's, it's very descriptive data, like what is going, uh, you know, what is it that you are, you know, you're studying, you're observing, um, and the what, who, why, when, everything, you know, it includes what, what, what's happening. So, um, you know, in, in terms of, for example, marketing, right, like if you use a phone, it's all about, you know, why did you buy an iPhone, what is it that you do, how much time are you spending on a particular app, um, what is it that you you know use that particular app for uh, versus what somebody else is uh, going to be doing? Um, so it's it's really getting into you know it's it's more uh, humanistic, more based on the individual and understanding rather than collecting a lot of data. It's it's zoning in and you know finding out um, uh, just limiting uh, it's it's limiting the number, but it's actually giving you an overall experience of what is happening. Um, so, so that's thick data for me that, you know. Okay, uh, actually, and as, an, yeah. Yeah. and as an example, for instance, when we are doing phenomenology and doing the discursive evocative descriptions, and especially in IPA, it's pathos laden. You know, we all, all heard the expression uh, ethos, pathos, logos, okay? Ethos is the ethics of a problem. The pathos is the deep emotions. Um, and the logos is the logic behind it. So in... For instance, in IPA, when we refer to thick data, we are talking about emotionally charged, emotionally laden data. We just don't hover on the surface. For instance, if you ask somebody, you know, what is it like for an unwed mother to raise a, a child in a single parent household? We are going for rich, evocative, emotional descriptions. We are not just staying on the surface. So, so thick can mean different things in qualitative, but definitely very elaborate data. So not just staying on the surface. So thanks for uh, clarifying that, Kirti. Uh, so I, at this point, I think I should stop my share so Kirti can uh, offer. Uh, Dr. Ranya, and we have another question from Priya. Okay, oh, go ahead, Priya, please. Okay, uh, so I'll just repeat her question. Uh, she asks, is it safe to say that in qualitative research, we can drop hypothesis testing as we are accepting raw and real information as it is, or it provides an outline to our research questions as we are not very much keen on outcome or yes or no answer as we get in quantitative researchers, researches. Go ahead. Um, Dr. Keeping, were you able to hear the question? Uh, so if you're asking us, because uh, I thought that it was a you know, you, it was more of a yes or no. Uh, so yeah, there's no hypothesis testing. Um, you know, the, the logic of hypothesis testing uh, doesn't apply to ethnography or, or even phenomenology for that matter. So there's no hypothesis testing that we are engaging in. Um, is that what you were after? Because I'm not sure what the actual question was. Do you want me to repeat it? Yeah, yeah, if you could. Sure. Because I'm not sure what is it that you want. Uh, what is the question here? I thought it was a long statement. Not a problem. I'll repeat it again. Uh, she asks, is it safe to say that in qualitative research, we can drop hypothesis testing as we are accepting raw and real information as it is? Or it provides an outline to our research questions as we are not very much keen on outcome or yes or no answer as we get in quantitative researches. 
So did you did you say drop hypothesis quest? Uh, yes, yes. Or draw or draw? Okay. Drop, Was drop. it draw? Okay. Drop, oh, okay. Okay. Good. 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 Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you're you're right. Like I said, you know. So so what you have is yeah, we don't we don't we're not testing uh, hypothesis. We're not testing theory, right? In qualitative, we are developing theory. Um, okay. So very um, very different ways of yes. understanding. Yes. Um, so we are yet to answer Arunima's question as well. <laughs> Actually, forgot yeah. we forgot that. Really quick, because uh, Dr. Kirti has to do her own presentation on this uh, on a sure, study. Sure, sure, sure. I'll ask her so, question quickly. So, uh, uh, quickly. so she wanted to ask. Um, I wanted your insights on how we can imagine ethnography in the near future, post-COVID scene. Uh, I mean, the tools we will be using and how we can ensure validity and reliability for the same. I think the tools will remain the same. To be very honest, uh, you know, my own project uh, we've um, stopped it because. Um, the observations are not possible, uh, but that it just means, right, you have to be creative. Like I said, um, blessing in disguise, it just means that, you know, we've been given access to a lot of documents and uh, we, we start with that. So th that's that's what has changed um, in the post-COVID world. Um, I mean, of course, uh, if, 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 if this continues, then as researchers, we'll have also have to take certain uh, calls on the safety. Um, that's primarily one reason. So my, my field work is to be in Udaipur and technically things are open in Udaipur. Um, but in terms of safety, I'm, I've decided that, you know, I'll, I'll do the secondary data analysis first um, till it becomes absolutely safe for me to visit uh, communities and stay there and spend time there. Um, and again, I said, you know, with reliability and validity, um, it, uh, I don't know how, how does, uh, you know, the, the COVID scenario impact that it, it doesn't, right? I mean, we, we're still going to be doing our research with a lot of trustworthiness, with thick descriptions, making sure that our, you know, the, the coding, the analysis and everything else, um, you know, follows the structure and it's, it's rigorous. So COVID will not, I don't think it's having any impact on that. Okay, so I th with that, yeah, I think you. we could go ahead uh, with your presentation. Um, okay. Yuti? So I'm not going to take a lot of time because I think a lot of what I have here, we've already talked about, which is always fantastic. Um, but um, you know, when I was uh, starting with ethnography, it was, it was a challenge. It was quite overwhelming. Um, my PhD student has heard stories of me crying as well. Um, and in fact, uh, very recently, you know, she undertook a qualitative project and she was also overwhelmed. And uh, I told her that it's a good sign. You know, if you're not sleeping, uh, because you're, you know, you're thinking, you're dreaming of your data, and if you feel you're overwhelmed, it's a good sign. Then you're doing something right. In fact, if you were not overwhelmed, uh, then I would be questioning what is it that you're doing. You know, your interviews, there's something not right there. Uh, so, with that in mind, I thought that you know, I, I'll discuss reflections. Um, these are not, uh, you know, these are things that have helped me. There are certain challenges that I faced, and I like to share how I sort of, you know, overcame them. Um, feel free to, you know, use them, modify them, adapt them, and, um, you know, if, if it works for you. Um, so, so, so just to give you an overview, what uh, this is uh, derived from my PhD uh, work. And um, to give you a bit of a context, like I said, you know, the research problem or the aim determines the method, not the other way around. Um, so what I wanted to actually understand is, you know, climate change responses, they happen at the level of the organization, but how is it that people within the uh, organizations, right, their actions, their sayings, their doings, 
how does it lead to development of organizational change responses? For those of you who are a bit, um, maybe, you know, critically inclined, uh, this is drawing from uh, strategy as practice and uh, process ontology is uh, driving this sort of a research aim. Um, and within that, you know, there were specific things. And, you know, these, the reason I've highlighted those three questions is because I want to make it very clear. These questions were not set in stone on day one right? Um, the way we write it, yes, we write it as if they were set in stone on day one, but that's not the case with qualitative. Uh, these have been refined, these have been worked on as, this, you know, more data has been collected and it has been analyzed. So, um, but yes, the overall research aim has remained constant. The other three specific questions, we have uh, worked on them. So please uh, don't beat yourself up if you think that, okay, I don't have my research questions set up because they will change depending upon your field work. So the idea was looking at routines, what are routine connections and uh, you know how do actors, that is people working in organizations, they create routines, they maintain routines and they modify routines. And all of this in connection with climate change responses. So in terms of design, uh, it was an ethnographic study, uh, Australian energy company, and there were two reasons for doing this. Uh, first of all, again, in the broader theoretical framework of strategy as practice, as well as process ontology, ethnography has been recommended as the choice of method, because you again, you're trying to understand individual actions, how they're connected to each other. So it, it involves, uh, or rather, you know, it needs a very deep um, immersion with, with, with the objects of your study. Uh, also, it is really important to ensure that, um, you know, the case that you take or, you know, the company that I took, it was actually responding to climate change. So because it's an energy company, it was mandatory uh, um, uh, according to the Australian law. Uh, now, like I said, I'm interested in, you know, I like to study how things evolve, how routines are changed, modified. So because it's a how question, so I'm studying development, you know, so hence it had to be a longitudinal study. So the time period was 2008 to 2016. Again, very purposely sampled time period. 2008 was the year when this uh, company um, was listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. And also 2008 was the year when the Australian government ratified the Kyoto Protocol, making it mandatory that companies have to report their emissions. So this is driven by you know, the, the, the theory and what I want to study. Instruments, document analysis. So um, 2008, I wasn't actually around in Australia. I don't think I knew what climate change uh, impact and uh, Kyoto meant in 2008. Uh, so documents, historical data analysis was a very useful tool for me. Uh, non-participant observation. So I was there, but I wasn't working with them. I wasn't helping them. I wasn't going to tell them that, you know, you have said this in the meeting and you should have said this. Um, and I also had interviews. I had some interviews before my observations and then there were also interviews post-observations where I learned something, you know, I saw something and I was like, I need to talk to you about this. Also, I did this across all levels in the organization from the board of governance to, um, you know, people who are working in the mines. Um, so 52 interviews and I spent 20, 24 days um, in the company. Uh, and also I attended meetings that were being held. So, you know, there was a board committee responsible for climate change and every time they had a meeting, I was there. Now a little bit of a tidbit over here, a tip, executive assistants, are extremely, extremely helpful. You know, secretaries, um, executive assistants, because uh, they will know who is where and who has a meeting with whom. 
so instead of directly talking to the CEO, I would just talk to the executive assistant and I would know what his timetable was for the entire week, what his plan was, where was he going to be? And I could then plan accordingly. Um, so find such people in your, uh, in your field. I know it could be community gatekeepers, it, it could be in organizations, it really could be secretaries, admin people, they will, they will be really, really a useful source for you. Um, I wouldn't go too much into data analysis because we're focusing on the method right now. Now, uh, this is, you know, I found this to be very, very useful for me. Uh, this is a 2006 article and it talked about the overall ethnographic process. And I found that it, it, it worked really well with my own study. So the first step is that of getting in. Very, very important. So this is all the pre-planning. Dr. Keithi, I'm sorry to cut you off, but is it me or um, your presentation is stuck on just one slide? Uh, I have moved it. I, uh, are everybody able to see the next slide? Uh, no, even my um, thing is stuck on that first slide itself, the research design. Right, I think that's the case with everybody. <laughs> Could you just uh, reshare your slide again? Right, let me just stop and yes, Sorry about that. Is it? Is it? Yeah, there you go. Now it's visible. Perfect. Sorry. There you go. There you go. That's what I was talking about. Um, so I've kind of already discussed this, right? The gaining access, the negotiation process. It's really important to be truthful. Um, you know, um, I think Siddhant would agree with community. It has had different kind of challenges. Uh, uh, when I go, Siddhant, you were talking about, you know, being from a different, um, different country altogether, but even right. within India, um, you know, within India, I've had that. Uh, uh, so Rajasthan, I'm working with a lot of tribal communities and um, I am a Mishra from, uh, from, from North of India. Uh, so, so the, the, you know, the caste uh, barriers are very much there for me also to, um, you know, navigate. And I, I actually, you know, empathize with you as well, because um, again, there's no template, there's no answer. And this is where I rely on my community partners to guide me through it. Uh, you know, what is appropriate for me to say, um, just to share an example, you know, a lot of these people will not sit down um, because, I, you know, if I'm standing and, um, and, 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 and I find it absolutely, um, you know, it, it's just, it just doesn't work with me. Like, why is it that they won't sit down? And I keep, you know, in the first meetings, I would just be like, no, 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 use it, use it, use it. Uh, and then later I learned that I was actually, you know, I can be construed as being very rude um, by not sitting down. Or, you know, mm -hmm. like they would, bring, they would bring water for me, which is not from the water that they are drinking, right? It's, it's a nicely packaged mystery bottle for me. And in, in refusing it, right? Because my immediate action was, you know, forget all this caste system, why I'll drink the same water. But then I was informed that this would be construed as me being rude. Um, so I think, you know, you learn um, as you go, just be open to learning and have those, you know. Um, so for me, the NGO partners are really, really um, good. Uh, they, they really help me navigate these challenges. Um, getting on, like I said, you know, preparations, I'll discuss a couple of templates later on. Uh, getting out is also very important. I think people forget. <laughs> uh, make sure that if you have promised that you're going to make a presentation to the community or to the NGO or to the organization, please do that. Um, uh, if you have told them that, you know, I'm going to, we have this idea of member checking that I'm going to send you some transcripts to review, please do that. Um, it's nice to say a thank you. And, you know, that finally we have done this to ask them, would you like me to share some insights of, you know, from what I have learned? It's always, you know, round, round it off as well. Um, 
do let me know if it moves to the next slide i hope it does um so taking there field notes yeah, yeah. really important um so this is what i do uh, first of all i write down because uh, this is happening while you are in the field right you are observing a meeting let's say so jottings are basically you know i'll write down that um, and then i'll i'll revisit them later so for example you know if the topic of the meeting was that we need to change um, a particular ngo or you know we are going to move from carbon disclosure project to gri guidelines so those are some of the jottings that i'll have uh, description would be you know who initiated the meeting who initiated the conversation um what what is you know how were other people talking to this person where is this person sitting uh, what happens right when he makes this point what are how are the other people reacting to it then i'll start you know looking at analysis is there some power structure here you know is this uh, is this about some discourse what kind of socio materiality things can i learn from there and then finally reflection like why is it that i think so um what have i learned on a personal level as well um, am i why am i reacting to it this way why do i think this is interesting and things like that um so basically what i think of it is that you know i'm collecting two kinds of information the first is my descriptive information who is doing what Uh, and again i do apologize because i'm talking specifically from my work um so it's more about organizational uh, stuff um and you will see here i've clearly written down you know research question is always going to be the guiding framework when you are reflecting right um so please remember disciplined imagination now um so this is something that i actually uh, one of my colleagues shared with me now this comes from design thinking but i actually find it to be very useful in ethnography what is it that somebody saying what is it that they doing how do they feel right when somebody comes up with a new idea at a meeting how do the others respond emotionally and what are they thinking uh, for the thinking part you can't always observe this is where the questions you know the interview comes in hand so this is a tool empathy map also not something i've created but i found it really really useful so people are doing ethnography you might want to have a look at it it's very simple right uh, but it helps with data analysis a lot and finally this is something that i have developed on my own um you can see i have you know so you can modify this template based on your research question um i usually take a lot of a4 sheets i bind them and i make this you know rows and tables and columns it's up to you how you would like to do it some people use post it notes as well um i also do color coding and uh, i also you know have short forms for people so you know for example if it's a sustainability meeting uh, i'll just do you know sm uh, so i have these short hands as well because like i said you know observations can be so overwhelming um so in you know i've i've written some examples here again these might not apply to what you are doing so in my case for example you know language formal versus informal so when an ngo partner comes in and you have the community leader and you have you know a corporate partner what is the language there is everybody addressing them as sir you know aap is the community elder being addressed as aap because that shows to me the power dynamic so i pay attention to that who is sitting where right so if the community leader walks in and does everybody stand up and do they actually wait for everybody else to sit down and then um if a community leader for example is late how do the others react 
Like, do they make a big fuss about it or they just let it go? It also shows the power dynamics. Uh, so those are the things that, you know, and this is all pre-planning. Um, so I, I try and, you know, put all of these things um, um, as much as I can in my template beforehand. Um, in my case, I'm also interested in the temporality, you know, how many times does a meeting happen? Um, is it an activity which is happening regularly? What kind of, you know, um, so, so a great example of this is, you know, answering emails. So many a times not answering an email is also a purposeful action that I actually want to delay it. So those kind of delaying tactics also show me, you know, the power imbalances or how, you know, how people are negotiating in a meeting. So I make a note of that. Um, space where the meeting is happening is also important. Uh, so is the company saying that, you know, come to our office? And I am not kidding here. This is an example from my own field work. Uh, the energy company that I was talking about, uh, they used to have their uh, meetings with the NGO partners in, in a designated meeting room. And the way it was structured, it was always that the members of the organization would always be sitting at a level higher than that of the NGO partners. And this was deliberately done. So we are, you know, we are the ones, even though this looks, you know, on paper, we have a memorandum of understanding that equal stakeholders and, you know, deliberative democracy and whatnot. But in terms of using the physical space, the corporation was making it very clear that we are the ones who have power here. We are going to dictate things here. So the space is really important for my work as well. And then, of course, the why, like, why is it that people are you know engaging in the things that they do um, so like i said you know interviews will happen beforehand and after as well a lot of conversations so um, one of the reasons that i actually end up a bit early for my interviews and uh, observations is actually to have conversations you know you're there a bit early you start talking to somebody and you you know it all helps and it becomes a part of your field work uh, so it, it shows dedication and it's it's, it's also a tactic for employed by me to understand and to gather more information. Um, so that's actually what I had. Um, uh, just to sort of, you know, wrap it up, um, having been there, I can tell you that it's, it's overwhelming, qualitative data is. And if, if you don't feel overwhelmed, um, then you're probably not doing it right. But at the same time, uh, there are ways in which we can make sense of data. One thing that we haven't talked about right now is, you know, the iterative nature of, 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 of any qualitative work, you know, be it phenomenology, be it ethnography or grounded theory as well. Um, so, so please understand that data collection, your uh, reading of literature and your analysis are happening at the same time. Right. So don't be like, OK, I have finished my interviews, I have finished my, you know, so don't, you know, when you're planning, it's not going to be like, yes, I'm going to finish my 52 interviews, and then I will start with analysis. You, if you recall in my template, I actually had my analysis column as well. Uh, so these things are happening simultaneously. These templates really help. I have friends who, you know, who use post-it notes. I have friends who use color coding, like I, I also do color coding. Um, and, you know, maybe just using shorthand. But this pre-planning is very, very useful. I'm speaking from experience. Uh, it makes the process really enjoyable because you're not constantly thinking, you know, I have not written this down, I've not done this. Um, and uh, at the same time, it makes your analysis very, very structured. Um, people were talking about reliability and validity. In fact, ensuring, you know, these templates this actually helps you show that how I'm using empirical evidence to connect 
to my theory or to you know develop more framework so it really helps in improving the quality of your work another thing that people have started doing is and that depends upon whether you have the permission or not you can also record meetings i think most of us you know are familiar with recording interviews you can take consent from the participant but even for uh, you know meetings um and for taking observations if uh, if if it's um, you know if if you can get consent then these can be recorded and then you just analyze them and go through them um as you would go through the interview data um so th that's actually what i had in mind i just wanted to share with you some tools and techniques and uh, you're free to use them you're free to come up with yours uh, but that's just great. so so one of the one of the questions that came up from javed was um yeah, is it okay for to share your my powerpoint is okay yeah. i always I'm willing it can we share your powerpoint with the group absolutely not an issue at all in okay. fact so, you know okay. if you adapt the template you add things on to it then do let me know also you uh, know yeah, work on this <laughs> so that's excellent so, so if you can just exit your uh, powerpoint I, i'll get into mine Just yep. for a second here. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, let's see how I can get to mine. All right. Uh, yeah, I've stopped sharing. So you stop sharing. Okay. So yep. I think I have to get into share my screen. Okay. So I think I should to get into here. Share. Okay. All right. So I'm back here. So now I'm. always of the philosophy that rather than rush through everything okay it's important to stay centered on what we've been discussing the most about okay so what what i would like to do is rather than jump into ethno methodology uh which is going to take a whole block of time i'd like to stay on dr kirti mishra's um presentation and the discourse and open this out uh for you all to ask your questions of dr kirti mishra and i'll share this powerpoint to you at some point maybe down in the near future we will do a whole blown out um presentation on ethno methodology uh, it's a very involved process you heard about conversation analysis is used very very much in linguistics and it's a part of sociology it brings in alfred schutz's um, social phenomenology into the picture so it's a, it's a very complex type of um, uh, approach so i'd rather spend a whole segment uh, on that doing that at some future point in time so at this time i'd like to open this floor to our um, to all of you to and and i'd like to request uh, dr kirti mishra as usual to field dr. any dr. questions Anil. that you might have go ahead uh, dr anil mitakshara media has raised her hands you can just oh mitakshara i didn't know she was here yeah. okay she's been here hiding silently mitakshara what do you have on your mind uh, uh so actually i had a question to uh, ma'am like uh, with regard to yes. her research mm -hmm. um ma'am i had to ask uh, two questions first is what kind of ethical dilemmas did you face while conducting this research and the second was about getting out so i i believe it needs to be a whole process of getting out since you have been immersed in the setting for so long uh, i i guess uh, we would have to take a few days or even like a few weeks in hand before getting out uh, so i wanted to know the process of it uh, your experience sorry right um so is this so i'm going to talk about the first my phd study first in terms of ethical dilemma 
<laughs> climate change is a very, very heated political topic. Um, and I mean, it's, it's a very heated political topic across the world, but more so in Australia. It's um, a lot of prime ministers have uh, lost their jobs because of uh, climate change. Um, and then working in you know, one of the largest um, coal mining companies, um, the dilemma was always, and, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, right? So I'm also, uh, at the time of the research, I was actually also their customer. And um, I never realized, but um, the, the, the seniors had actually given me their visiting cards, which were nothing but coupons for getting uh, rebate on my electricity bill. Uh, that's something that I learned later on. Um, my participants had also, you know, the company had also offered that, um, because I was based in Melbourne and the head office was in Sydney, that we will fly you and we'll, we'll be happy to pay for your stay. Uh, so when it comes to ethical dilemmas, again, I think uh, people who have been in this field longer, so our supervisors is what I did. I immediately went to discuss this with my supervisors, my um, colleagues. Um, and they, you know, the, of course they couldn't, they couldn't support my um, research at all. Because as the researcher, I'm reporting, you know, I'm, I'm reporting from a distance. I'm, I cannot be involved. I cannot be seen as, you know, supporting them at, as well. Um, I also had to be very clear from the beginning uh, that um, I'm not going to be talking about what is the right climate change response, because that's not what the topic of the work is. I'm just trying to explain how things, you know, individual actions within the organization they lead to certain sort of a response at the organizational level. The, the context is that of climate change, but I'm not going to be telling whether you are doing a great job. I'm not going to be sharing this with others and also saying that you are doing a fantastic job and you're a great green company. None of that will happen. Uh, before I started with my data collection, I actually had meetings with the entire board of directors and senior management. Uh, explaining to them what my work was and what would be the outcome. So this is connected to you signing off also. Uh, they had uh, actually requested that um, they, they wanted a bit of, you know, they wanted a seminar once my data collection was over. And uh, individual teams had wanted to have, uh, you know, reflective conversations uh, once my study was over. So after I finished my thesis and I submitted, um, I wrote to all of them and I did that. Uh, and I think it's, a, you know, the fact that they are still very, you know, all of them are connected to me and I can still ring them up and mail them and ask them in, about information is a testament to that, that, you know, closing of that loop. Um, don't make any promises, you know, don't say that you're going to get this done. Uh, especially in organization studies, please, please don't go and offer them that, you know, we're going to fix this problem. If, 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 if you, if, I would rather say that even if you think you can fix that problem, don't, you know, just undersell yourself because there's the, the setting wrong expectations can be really, really detrimental. Um, a lot of times in qualitative work, I have seen, you know, there is a requirement that we need to, once we start in-depth analysis, we need to go back to the field as well. Uh, so if you set wrong expectations and you don't close that loop properly, then it can come to haunt you. Um, I had also, you know, uh, given this option to my participants that if you would like to read the finished copy of the thesis, this was part of my ethics statement, um, then it would be made available to you. Um, and a few of them had. Uh, so I ensured that uh, once uh, my thesis had been written and um, marked, 
I sent them a copy of the thesis. Some individuals had also requested for a transcript of their interview. Um, so I ensured again that uh, it was sent to them on a timely manner. So those were some of right. the things that I had to do to close that loop. Right, right, right. Uh, thanks, uh, Kirti. And um, Vantika, if you could also just cut and paste the entire uh, chat into sure, a I'll separate do document. Uh, sure, yeah, sure. you've already done that? Uh, no, I'll do that. But before yeah. that, we have Priya's question. So uh, okay, in the sure. chat box, so I'll just repeat yeah. her question. Uh, yeah, she yeah. asks, could you please elaborate on what includes in pre research and designing templates and how to go about it? Wow, nice. Yeah, so very basic stuff again comes from your research question. Uh, in terms of observation, what is it that you're observing? Why is it you're observing? What time will you be observing? Uh, what behaviors are important for you? Um, like I said, you know, is it important how people are dressed? Um, you're maybe doing a culture study, so you want to look at that. Uh, what is in the room, for example, if you're looking at artifacts, that might be important. So based on your research question and your reading of the literature, uh, the what, who, the what, why, how, all of this is going to be a part of your uh, template. Um, make sure that um, you, you've thought it through, um, you know, try to visualize the setting and how it could be important. Uh, like I said, you know, I'm looking at negotiations. So, you know, power imbalances. Therefore, it's really important for me that who is sitting where. If it's, if it's not important for you, then you don't need to look into it. Um, if you're looking at the kind of language people are using, then that needs to be, uh, sorry, a part of your template. Um, so I'm, I'm, like I said, you know, I'll share my uh, template and uh, I think you would have to customize it uh, driving from your own research question. That's, that's excellent. Um, anybody else has any questions? I just want to be mindful about the time boundary. It's uh, 11.30. For me in the morning, but it's uh, probably ten. Uh, what time is it for you? Um, uh, nine o'clock. Nine o'clock at at night, right? So I don't want to pull this more than we have to. Uh, but if you have a couple of quick questions, I'm sure Kirti wouldn't mind staying a couple of minutes uh, longer and and answer them. Uh, otherwise, we can always have these questions fielded uh, via email. Okay. But here I'm she is sure. and. Yeah, so please feel free to drop in a message. Great, great. Um, so if nobody has any questions, uh, we can um, wind this up for today. Uh, I would like to take this opportunity to thank um, Dr. Kirti Mishra for uh, spending time with us. She has been a very, very valuable resource. And I've certainly learned a lot from her um, discourse here uh, and our conversation here. Um, and so thank you, Kirti, for um, taking time out of your schedule to do this. I know you, you could have other things to do on a Saturday evening. You know, I don't know how much more you can do in a COVID situation, but, but we all have things to do. So thank you for uh, devoting that much time and energy to us. And also thank you, Avantika, for, uh, for keeping us on track and for moderating the session. Uh, and of course, uh, it goes without saying, I want to thank all of you that have participated and for your brilliant questions and insights and observations. And if we've not been had a chance to uh, address some of your questions, we can certainly do that via email. And I'm sure uh, Dr. Mishra will be uh, more than happy to, uh, to answer those questions for you. So with that, I would like to end the session. Um, all of you, please be safe and uh, 
this is certainly by no means the end. It's the beginning uh, of an understanding. It's a very uh, complex, very vast methodology approach, whatever, in qualitative research. So uh, let's continue the journey. And I'd be happy to share both the PowerPoints. Avantika will be able to send them to you. Uh, and also uh, the other resources that I have here, I'll be happy to share those also with you. They're on the internet, they were public, so I can share them with you. All right. Um, so again, I appreciate your time and the energy. And with that, I'll just say goodbye. All right. Thanks. Thank we'll do you. a recording of this session everyone. and we will post the recording on uh, YouTube and create a link and share that link with everybody also. All right. Okay. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.